are listening to Rootbound, a podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside. Mighty oaks from tiny acorns grow. That's right. This episode of Rootbound is brought to you by acorns. Squirrels go nuts for them. Hello, everyone. Thank you for listening to the 54th episode of Rootbound. I'm your host, Steve, and Rootbound is the podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside. And each week, I invite a guest to share with me about a plant that means something to them. And then I share with the guest about a plant that means something to me. And through this process, we all learn more about plants and learn more about each other. Today on the show, we're going to talk about our first moss, which is very exciting. You'll remember a few episodes back, I was kind of tricked when I talked to my friend Stefan about Spanish moths, which we learned is neither a moss nor from Spain. But today, we will be talking about true mosses, which is really exciting. But before we get to that, I want to talk about an aspect of all mosses that's a little bit more general, and that is on the subject of spores. Now, you're here in the show that the guest and I were kind of a little bit maybe confused about some things related to spores, but after the show, uh, she sent me a little email with, with some clarifications, and I'll read a little bit of that here, and then I'll talk a little bit about spores, and then we'll get onto the show and meet our guests. So, the email from the guest said, uh, Mosses exhibit alternation of generations with a haploid gamete-producing plant, the gametophyte, that is relatively large, long-lived, and noticeable, and a much smaller, short-lived, diploid sporophyte that is produced on the gametophyte, and which produces spores and then is shed. And so this alternation of generations things is really in- interesting where they have this haploid phase and then this sporophyte uh, diploid phase and they go back and forth between these two phases. It's pretty complicated. I'll try to explain that a little bit more now, but if I don't get it right, everybody, or you don't quite understand, uh, we can maybe have a conversation uh, on, on Instagram or through email, or if you know more about this and you want to come on the show and tell me more about uh, what I got wrong or, or, or clarify, because you're a moss expert, I'd love to hear from you. Um, but this is this is what that means. So uh, most creatures that we think of, plants and animals, are uh, diploid. So you need two parents to create a child, and, and, and each one gives like, you know, the X chromosome and the Y chromosome. It's not always the same, but that's kind of a simplification one set of chromosomes comes from one parent, one comes from the other. They create a child that has two chromosomes and then so on and so forth. That's a diploid organism. But there are haploid organisms that only have one set of chromosome. They don't need a second parent to uh, to keep reproducing. They can just continue in this haploid state. And and mosses uh, do that for, for most of the time. But then from my understanding is after some time, there is a way that the sporophyte is created, which is a diploid. It's got, it's got kind of a male part and a female part. And then those spor- sporophytes release the spores, which, which get blown away by the wind. And then those spores land somewhere, and then they can um, germinate and create a new haploid version of the plant. At least that's my understanding. Uh, like I said, I'm not altogether clear. But what's interesting about them is that they don't have seeds. They basically have these these tiny versions of the plant that float away in the wind and they can reproduce that way, but they can also reproduce just by reproduce just by spreading in a, in a uh, non-sexual reproduction. Whereas the spore reproduction is a sexual reproduction. So that's what I have to say about spores. I know it's not perfect, but I think it's pretty interesting. And I think it's 
different from basically all the other plants we've talked about on the show so far. Um, we have not talked about any spore-producing plants, so that's pretty cool. But with that, let's just meet our guest today and talk more about moss. Your Excellency, have you ever been in love? No. I thought I was once, but then I remembered our species reproduces with a cloud of spores. Hello, Sarah. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Rootbound. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. Do you have a plant to share with us today? I do. It's actually not just one plant. It's um, a genus of plant species, approximately 380 species um, of moss. Yeah. So it's the genus Sphagnum. Um, and it's a big group of diverse mosses that uh, grow, I think, all over the world, but primarily in like the northern hemisphere in like these big uh, moist bogs um, or boreal forests, places where uh, it's just kind of like wet a majority of the time. Um, very, but yeah. very interesting. Just before we get more into it and why you chose it, I have to say, you know, we had a false alarm a few episodes ago when we talked about Spanish moss, but you are actually talking about the first actual moss, or, or am I correct? Is, is, are these r- true mosses? <laughs> these are true mosses. Um, and awesome. yes, that is not a small factor in why I chose uh, the sphagnum mosses. Wanted to get in there, be first. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, great. This I'm excited because I know very little about moss. I, I talked about some basics of moss in the beginning of that episode when I got tricked uh, by Stefan about moss. But uh, yeah, and I know this word sphagnum moss. Anyway, let's get into it. First, let's talk about why you chose them. Why are they meaningful to you? Yeah, sure. Um, So, okay, kind of two reasons. Um, The first reason is like purely based on their appearance. Um, And this kind of goes back to when I was growing up. We lived in a like real standard suburban neighborhood that had like really strict landscaping requirements. We had a big fertilized manicured lawn. We had like HOA requirements of like what color our mailbox could be. Um, Not a lot of wiggle room. But our lot was right next to a protected wetland. It had like a little stream and a culvert um, that like ran under the road to to keep the water flowing there. And so it was like a tiny little forest right next door. Um, so when I was growing up, I spent a lot more of my time playing in the forest next door than in our like big mode lawn. Um, so I, my main thing to do there, I'm a writer now. So, uh, when I was growing up, I loved to like play pretend and make up stories and just like invent crazy fantasy worlds or plots over the course of an afternoon. Um, and I don't know if you've ever seen like photos of, or been in like a forest yourself that has like a really mossy floor, like ground covering. Um, but it's like one of the most magical backdrops you could possibly imagine for, um, like running around on. It's just like green and soft. And when you walk on it, it's, it squishes a little bit and it's like great to run around barefoot. Um, so it's like a really ideal childhood backdrop for, for playing pretend in the, uh, the backyard forest. So it's got like a little bit of a sentimental, uh, uh, you know, meeting there for, for me with the mosses. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, you're right. There is something about that. A mossy forest is somehow more magical, at least in my mind than a non mossy forest. I've been in a few very mossy forests. Uh, uh, most like in my brain, a while back, uh, my wife and I traveled to New Zealand, and there's some really incredible moss-covered forests there. But then the one, just before we get to back to your moss angle, and I don't know what kind of moss this is. I know there's so many mosses, but one time in Romania, I was in this forest, and it was this very special kind of forest that's very rare that the moss was th- like like four feet thick. 
and the trees were growing in the moss. So like the roots of the trees were only being supported by moss. And yeah. uh, the the forester I was with uh, reached his arm all the way up to his shoulder. It was like a little s- small cliff where the moss was. And it was so thick. It was just like this giant pad of moss. It was really incredible. <sighs> That's incredible. Yeah, it really yeah. makes you think like, yeah, there could be elves in this wood. You know, there could totally. be like magical fairy creatures living here. Uh, <laughs> kind of under- otherworldly. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, well, yeah, let's tell, tell us about this uh, specific genus. I know, I mean, I know that, how do you say it again? Sphagnum? Sphagnum? Yeah, it's like S-P-H, so it's like a sph kind of noise. Sphagnum um, moss, yeah. <laughs> sphagnum moss. And this um, is when you see all yeah. the time at like, um, at like gardening stores or like aquariums and stuff, right? That's where you see the Exactly. Name. So it's a really common uh, genus of moss. And um, the funny thing, so like when I reached high school, I actually took a course called um, field biology. And so it was basically kind of what I was doing as a kid, but just like walking around with like a teacher who was like, now identify that. Um, so I learned how to identify these plants and animals. And, and, and it was one of like the first mosses that like, I was like, what kind of moss is that? Um, but yeah, so the specific genus um, was, it's it's like, it's kind of, uh, I like to describe it like, a, like it's like a mop um, rather than like some mosses are like they have really tiny, tiny leaves and, and they're like a flat sort of true carpet. This one's like shag carpeting um, mm. because it's got these like branches, um, like very small branches that have, they're, I think they're called fascicles, um, but it's like little Good leaves word. so they go around. Yeah, <laughs> it's like a $10 word that you learn when yeah. you're researching moss. Um, but uh, yeah, so they, they're kind of these like shaggy mop looking things and they can come in a bunch of different colors. But the ones that I'm familiar with um, around where I live in Virginia are um, like bright green and they'll sometimes have these little red uh, flecks in them. And that is the spore capsule or um, the equivalent of like the moss's flowers. Um and then, yeah, so the second reason I chose these mosses um, is because of this interesting function they have in ecosystems, which is that they're also called uh, peat mosses or bog mosses, um, mm. which will become self-explanatory in a little bit. But um, they build up over time, like centuries of growing and decaying in a place and building up those like massive, you know, several feet thick clumps of moss. Um they become something called peat, which is a specific soil type um, that is uh, very, very, it's like partially decayed plant matter um, and sphagnum mosses are like one of the primary plants that form these things. Um, And they're partially decayed because it's super, super uh, moist where they are. So like the water slows down the decay process Mm -hmm. um, and kind of like, gives it time to convert into this this peat soil. Um, and peat soils are incredibly carbon rich. So they have all of the organic matter of the moss. Um, and uh, they, but they hold on to it for a really long time. So over centuries and centuries, they'll be d- build up peat bogs, which are actually some of the most efficient carbon sinks in the world, even more so than like tropical forests. Um, So they're massive, massive storage uh, unit for carbon, basically. And so I work in climate change. So it's, they're important in like the climate change equation, um, in terms of of being a a place we need to like protect and uh, make sure that they're not releasing um, the carbon that they've stored up over hundreds and hundreds of years. That's super fascinating. And I, yeah, I think I've heard that before. 
And I think, I guess maybe something else you maybe mentioned is like, I know that these kinds of, uh, ecosystems are also at risk like we think of forest sector risks and like there there's like, i don't know if you have anything to say about that oh yeah so kind of like everything that's like oh wow this is like a really great carbon sink or like super important for like preventing climate change endangered so mm-hmm. <laughs> um there's a couple of reasons for that um one is just a competition with human um human development and are sort of like edging in on a pretty valuable like area of land. So humans will drain peat bogs to create agricultural land um, Mm. because the soil itself is so beneficial. It's got the um, uh, water holding properties that the moss itself does. They they can Mm -hmm. hold up to, I think, almost 20 times their dry weight in in water. They're extremely absorbent. So when you have this in the soil, it it holds onto water, retains it, and uh, which is good for crops and also like gives you a lot of uh, organic matter, um, which is great nutrients for crops. So um, it's a big issue in um, Indonesia, especially. Uh, mm-hmm. They have massive peat um, areas of peat forest and uh, will drain those sometimes for, uh, for agriculture, um, which also uh, the, <laughs> so the same factors that make it a really good like growing medium for vegetables and like crops and things are also what make it entirely like popular for potting soil and like um like home gardening essentially so (laughs) so it's kind of strange to think about the fact that like a lot of the like the peat soil that's sold in like the um you know garden center at just like a regular department store in the United States is actually uh, mined from like Canada's peat bogs. Um, wow. And so they're like, it's weird to think that they're like taking chunks of like an entire like, incredibly valuable like resource for stopping climate change and like using it to grow roses or petunias or something. Um, but yeah, it's like all those, the same like moisture and, and carbon and organic matter properties that, that make it so popular for this fascinating yeah they're they're, man that's that you know i think i i've heard this before but never really thought about it directly that way and yet then i think of course once you've put it in your 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 uh your planter those like carbon sink properties don't stick around it's not like you're just transferring some carbon somewhere it's eventually gonna like get into the atmosphere right yeah yeah so that's actually um that's a a good point because okay so estimated currently that across the world, peat landscapes are storing 600 gigatons of carbon, um, which is 44% of like the total carbon storage on, um, on land, like in soils. So it's like a massive, like one ecosystem is doing all of this work. Um, But when you drain a peat bog, and it no longer becomes like a functioning thing, it's just like a pile of peat. um, The first risk it runs into is uh, like decomposition. So the water that was slowing down the decomposition rate of this organic matter is now gone and it's exposed to the air and um, the respiration, like microbial respiration that creates carbon dioxide um, is an aerobic process. So now it has access to oxygen. It creates uh, carbon dioxide by breaking down these things and it speeds up the, the process like, a lot. So that's immediate carbon emissions. And I think um, about 
5% of anthropogenic emissions are because of peatland draining. Um, so in terms of preventing emissions, wow. preventing peatland draining is, is a pretty big deal. And that's actually one of the things that Indonesia has been working on um, in recent years is putting a moratorium on on further conversion of peatlands. And they've actually succeeded in bringing down some of their like forced carbon emissions um, in the past couple of years. So that's a success story there. Um, yeah, but the other risk that it, it happens when you like expose peatland um uh peatlands to like when you dry them out and expose them to the air is um the resulting material is extremely flammable uh because basically you've taken this like incredibly carbon rich like kindling and dried it like made it very vulnerable to catching fire so if a forest fire starts or um it catches a light, it can, it burns very quickly, very hot. And that's another like instant source of emissions into the atmosphere. Yeah. Um, it's like, um, I, you know, I've seen chunks of peat at a whiskey distillery in Scotland because they use peat in that process. Mm -hmm. Like they, they'll, they'll, they'll like burn it to like add smoky flavors to stuff. And it, I mean, dried chunks, they're just, it's just charcoal basically. Right. It's, mm -hmm. it's, yeah. 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 It's just like, the perfect tinder <laughs> for, for yeah. catching fire and not um, being able to put it out easily. Right. Which is why we like charcoal, right. It's, it's, it, it keeps burning. Yeah. Yeah. So that's actually a huge issue, especially in, in the tundra and in boreal regions. Um, there have been reports of things called zombie fires, which are forest fires that will burn across the landscape in the typical fashion of a forest fire. Um, but then when like the weather changes, it gets cold, the fire above ground is put out. Um, the peat in like dry areas the underground, the soil is still burning. So they can Whoa. burn over winter um, and like burn through an entire season um, and then pop back up when like the above ground vegetation becomes dry in the summertime and continue burning through, you know, the forest. Um, so it's a, it's a pretty, pretty serious, serious issue. Wow. And a yeah. lot of, wow. yeah. A lot of the occurrence um, of this is because like the soil is like drying out due to climate change in those areas. So um, yeah, keeping them wet is pretty important to keeping them preserved. Wow. That, that's really fascinating. Wow. That, yeah. Stunning facts there about uh, peat lands and, and climate change. It's something that, you know, I think when you, when you walk into your like, you know, local home Depot and grab a bag of soil, something that you don't think about, but I feel like, there's so many things like that. If you can like think about where something is really from, you can start to like unfold all those deeper stories, which is really interesting. So thank you for sharing that. I have, I, I don't know if you have any other, I, other fun facts. I have some questions about the plant itself. I don't know if you're prepared to answer some plant specific questions. Sure. I'll give it a shot. I do have a couple other little fun, fun, like tidbits, just like about sphagnum mosses particular. Oh, great. So maybe some of these will be there, but definitely let's not miss okay. those. But my main thing is, as you mentioned, and I think, I think, uh, I don't know if this is true. Um, but well, I know this is true, but I don't know if, let me just ask the question. You mentioned spores. And I think this is our also first spore bearing plant that we've had on the podcast. Are all mosses spores or some of them flowering? And also, I don't know, can you talk more about spores? Because we haven't talked about that. It's not something we talk about, uh, I think, in our general plant day-to-day -day life anyway. But um, yeah, very interested in that. Yeah. That's surprising. You haven't had any ferns or anything that would... That That's would true. We haven't had any ferns. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure if all mosses are spore-bearing, but I think I'm pretty sure all of the ones in the genus Sphagnum are. Um, 
And I think they have alternating generations as well. I can do a little Google search real quick if you want me to. <laughs> yeah, no, it, um, the audience can also Google. That's okay if you don't know the cool. answer off the top of your head. But yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm not sure about that. But the process of spores is it's um, – I think it's like it's like a little – tiny version of the plant (laughs) like that goes out and then like seeds itself onto like a rock or like a wet moist area and that's how how the spores carry the genetic material on yeah it's such a fascinating way of doing it because we're all i think we're also used to the seed concept right um and spores are so interesting and i I remember i I mentioned this on another episode I, i read somewhere that uh for like up until like pretty recently in human history people just thought ferns were magic because they don't have seeds and they're like how do these plants work if they don't have seeds and i guess the same thing is true for mosses yeah it is a little fascinating because it does feel like you know you could come by one season and like there's no moss covering a rock and then you come by the next and it's like where did all this come from (laughs) yeah yeah just keep building on top of on top of seemingly nothing right because they you know they can grow on, you know, on rocks and little crevices and things that aren't just like areas of soil. So it's kind of Yeah, fascinating. super fascinating. Okay, let's get to those other fun facts and dazzling details that did you have yeah, about yeah. the plant. Sure, sure. Um, so the plant itself, um, I looked this up. I was very curious. Not edible. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> but it does have um, a bunch of other interesting uses um, besides like being a really integral part of the, the carbon cycle. Um Historically, and I learned this from another podcast, The Explorers, which is like a podcast about women's history, um, like in women in antiquity. Um, but they were actually, because of their absorptive properties, they were used as like pads or tampons oh. like mens- for like menstrual, uh, yeah, people who menstruate. And that totally makes sense. Um, yeah, it was, it's kind of interesting because, uh, yeah, again, up to 20 times their weight in moisture. So very productive. But to me, it sounds like a recipe for an infection. Um, but but actually, um, there are these compounds in the plant itself, um, phenolic compounds, that's it. So these phenolic compounds, um, it's a type of acid um, in the plant that makes it naturally bacterial resistant. So wow. um, yeah, so it was, it's been used by a lot of um, indigenous cultures and like also ancient humans as like a wound dressing as well mm. um in the first world war actually they were it sphagnum moss was used as a wound dressing so it's like still up until fairly recently um a very popular and effective way of like absorbing staunching blood and preventing bacterial growth um wow yeah it can also be a great source of drinking water if you're out in the wilderness and you you need to find a place to like to get water from because they hold so much moisture um and i think in some places in like the lapland uh, area like in the arctic um it's used for cradle linings it's very insulating um oh. as like a soft soft thing for for babies um as well as toilet paper so <laughs> it's just like very productive hard-working plant and i think you know mosses maybe don't have like the charisma of other kinds of plants like that are bigger and more obvious, but they, they do a lot and they fill a really interesting like niche in the ecosystem. I mean, isn't that a movie you'd want to see? The only movie I want to see is called The World of Mosses. It's a documentary about the world of mosses. Well, wonderful. Thank you for sharing about sphagnum mosses with me. Uh, do you mind if I share a plant with you? Of course, I'd love to hear. <laughs> okay, so going from a very tiny plant to a much larger plant, um, 
I, th- this this plant, you know, why it's meaningful to me starts um, when I was trying to find a place to to collect pawpaws, which I had an episode a while back about pawpaws. Are you familiar with pawpaws? Yeah. I am. I tried one once. It's like combination between like a mango and a banana, in my yeah, opinion. They're, <laughs> they're so cool. And I, I mean, listen to the pawpaw episode, everybody. I, I'm like still obsessed with them. But when I first started understanding where you can find them and I wanted to find my own patch, I had been shown a place to collect them, but it was a very popular place and lots of people. So a few months before the pawpaw season, a few years ago, I was, um, I had, a, I've had a few hours to kill and I was a little bit away from home and I started looking at my, the map and like, where could I find pawpaws near where I am? And I was near the Potomac river, kind of a little bit up river from Washington, DC. And I, uh, I saw this little park on the map that is called uh, Red Rock Overlook Wilderness Area. And it's a very small little spot that's, you know, on the Potomac, but kind of around. There's a lot of suburban stuff around it. But I was like, that looks like it could be a good spot to find pawpaws. And so I went down there and I, I was very proud of myself because I was right. There were pawpaw trees there. Unfortunately, they're all pretty small. And so none of them were really ready to fruit to bear fruit but i was like hey good good job steve you like used your knowledge of plants and figured it out but when i got down there i was just like gobsmacked at the size of the trees there you know living in a suburban area like seeing just massive trees is something rare and even just in this this part of the country uh you know i live in virginia as well northern virginia um you know humans have cut down tons of the trees for a long time over here. And so finding really, really big trees is, is, you know, kind of rare, but these massive trees. And at first I I didn't really know what they were. I was trying to figure it out, but what I discovered they were is American sycamore trees. So that's my plant. They are so cool. Way Um, bigger than some moss. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So big. And I, I don't think I ever realized they got that big. I think that's what stunned me about them because I've seen them, but I'd never seen them that big before. Um, and so clearly they've been able to be left alone for a very long time because they were like, I mean, yeah, just uh, massive trees. I was just blown away. So that made me do some research about American sycamore and um, got a few fun facts and dazzling details here. Um, the first thing uh, that I always like to do is talk about the names. I'm really obsessed with like names and why we call things the way they do. And so first of all, it's scientific name is Platinus occidentalis, and mm-hmm. the specific epithet occidentalis just means Western. So at the time of naming them, when Linnaeus was naming everything, uh, there was only one other Platinus that was known, and that was the uh, Orientalis, which means Eastern. So this was the Western Platinus. And Platinus, that specific, or the, the genus name Platinus, uh, is the Greek based on the Greek word for that tree, the the Platinus uh, orientalis, which is the plane tree. Is, oh, is, like the is London that. plane trees. Exactly, yeah. and I'm going to save London plane tree for another episode. But it's it's kind of got its whole other fascinating thing going on because it's 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 kind of special. They're very common, but it I think it has a it has a unique story. So I think I'll save that for another episode, or someone else is going to come on and wants to talk about them because there are a lot of places. But they are very related. They are the same genus. And if you look at them, sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between a sycamore and a plane tree. Um, so that name sycamore, I was like, okay, what does that mean? I was, I, you know, and my first thought was like, well, is that related to some indigenous language? Because it's not something like I've, you know, that, that evokes something in English. 
but it turns out it's, it's also from Greek. And the word sycamore is a combination of something like suka and morus. And the suka is the Greek word for fig, and morus is the Greek word for mulberry. Okay, so just two trees that are not the same tree. <laughs> totally. And there is a plant that is called the sycamore fig that is from Greece. And it's actually even mentioned in the Bible. It's, it grows all around that area. And I guess it, and it's, it's often also called the mulberry-leafed fig. So it's a fig tree that has leaves that look kind of like a mulberry. Um, and I, I guess what happened when they started, someone started calling the plane tree sycamore is because the leaves and the little balls that grow on the sycamore reminded them of the sycamore fig. I see. <laughs> so very confusing and even more confusing. If you Google sycamore stuff, you're going to get about half American sycamore and you're going to get about half a tree that is called the sycamore maple, which is native to Europe. And it's, it's, uh, it's scientific name is Osser, which is the, uh, the genus for maples. And it's a uh, specific epithet is pseudo platinus. So it's the <laughs> platinus like maple, uh, but it's also called sycamore because it has leaves and it looks pretty similar to the sycamore. So very confusing um, naming history with all these things mixed up. And to make it even more confusing, and I talked about this a few episodes, that specific epithet, or not the specific epithet, but the genus name platinus has through various confounding reasons got tied up into the Spanish word platino, which is the name for the plantain tree, which is, so anyway, very confusing. That is to say, we're it's talking about- a tree about, with an identity crisis, I think. To, well, I think it's humans with a naming crisis because <laughs> they, they keep calling the same things the same things and, uh, and it gets very confusing. But this is the American sycamore, which is platinus uh, occidentalis. So- Yes, that's the confusing name history of the sycamore. Um, just a couple other cool things about the sycamore. Uh, it's, its wood is really, really dense and hard to split. And it, it hasn't been used too much in like lumber because it's really difficult to work with. But what it has been used traditionally is for making butcher blocks. Because it's hard to split, it's great for for hacking at stuff with like a hatchet to like, you know, cut meat or something. So that's one that's of its great. Cause I wouldn't want to cleave through my cutting board if I was exactly, to... <laughs> exactly. So that's, um, that's kind of one of its main timber purposes, but there's other uses. Um, the bark, if you look at the bark, it's very light colored and these, these big parts that peel off, it's kind of got this peely bark. And from what I understand, the reason why it's like that is, you know, every tree needs to stretch and expand its bark as it grows but the bark on the sycamore is much harder to stretch than other trees. So you don't get those ridges like you get on other trees. It just ends up coming up from these big flakes because it's really not stretching until it can really just release whole whole chunks, which I thought was pretty fascinating. I think that leads into its like denseness and hardness as a, as a, as a lumber species as well. Wow, that's so neat. Um, then, then, yes, the seeds are also really cool. If you've been anywhere near a sycamore tree, it has these little... You can look up and you'll see these little balls. It almost looks like it's got Christmas ornaments hanging down from it, you know. And then actually in the winter, they often stay hanging on all winter and don't fall off mm -hmm. until the spring. 
Um, so yeah, I think I actually... I've turned my ankle on those little things a lot of times, <laughs> just trying yes. to walk through the forest. <laughs> yes, totally. Um, and I did read that, uh, I guess in some like, you know, um, pre-consumerism Christmas uh, decorations that uh, taking the little balls from the sycamore and, and, and tying them together with some holly and some stuff like that is like a way to make nice Christmas um, ornaments or Christmas decorations. So I think I want to try that. That sounds very cute. Yeah. Um, and then uh, maybe the last, oh, oh yeah. Oh, then the, then the seeds though, I think are really fascinating as well. The balls, the seed balls are cool. They're these little hard balls for most of the time, but once they fully dry out, they break apart into a million little, not a million, but lots of little fluffy seeds. They spread by the wind like a dandelion. Huh. But we often don't see them like that because we disregard them when they're the little, in the little ball form. And I think we miss that moment when they just start spreading away. Like, uh, Yeah, I had no idea of that. How long does that take, the drying out process? To- so I think most of the time they dry over the winter on the tree and then they fall off in the springtime is the best time. And then... I, over a while, I guess things step on them or they get blown around or they break apart and the wind blows them away. So it's kind of this long process. I think that's pretty smart because it's not sending all the seeds all at once. It's kind of each ball has to have its moment to break apart and fly away. So that's also pretty cool. Very neat. Um, and then the last, I think, dazzling detail about sycamore, because they grow so large, and I, I didn't know that till I saw these big ones, but it's very common for them to grow very big. Um, they're some of the biggest trees in the eastern united states apparently um also though when they get old and big the uh the heartwood tends to rot away and they can become hollow and so they become great habitat for all kinds of wildlife including because they're so big is bears have been known to use them as dens for like hibernation and yeah like that, or just yeah <laughs> wow yeah yeah, and I think there's not as many trees like that around anymore uh, that are that big that have gotten hollow, but I, can't, I guess that was common. I even read some stuff um, about, like, it wasn't uncommon for, like, people to take shelter in them because they make a perfect little house that, you know, they have a little hollow door and stuff like that because, oh and yeah. But tons of other, like, uh, barred owls and wood ducks and all sorts of other kind of animals take shelter in them because they make this nice little perfect home. <laughs> Talk about a tree house, I guess. But um bum uh, very good. Well, uh, yeah, thanks for talking about uh, a very tiny plant with me. And thanks for letting me share a very large plant with you. Wonderful. I'll have to go out and find both of these in, in sort of the area around, uh, around where I live. <laughs> Wonderful. Me too. Thanks. <laughs> awesome. Bird singing in the sycamore tree. Dream a little dream of. Well, that was a really wonderful conversation with Sarah about uh, American sycamore and sphagnum moss. And the conversation about moss and climate change, I think, was really thought-provoking. And it had me doing lots more research about things and thinking about, um, you know, what plants have to teach us about climate change and what plants have done for the planet in in regards to sequestering carbon. And um, the first thing I thought about when Sarah was describing this process of of how peat is formed and how peat stores carbon underground and at the bottom of these bogs, I was curious if um, it was related to the process of how coal is created. And it turns out, yes, uh, coal is essentially really, really, really old peat. This process through millions of years of this plant material 
uh, sinking underneath these swampy areas and getting compressed and compressed and compressed and eventually turning into coal. It's essentially just plant material. So, so plants have been doing this, this uh, service to the world for millions of years of capturing the carbon in the atmosphere and then sinking it deep within the ground. And then I was thinking then, well, if that's coal, what about oil? You know, oil is different from coal. It's a liquid. What is oil mostly? And, and it turns out that oil is, is mostly also plants. Um, some people think it's, you know, dinosaur juice or whatever. That's sometimes said. But it's mostly plants. And specifically, it's mostly phytoplankton, which are very tiny microalgae. They're not plants how we normally think of them. They're almost microscopic. But they live in the upper part of the ocean, and they absorb CO2. And they use sunlight to turn CO2 into more material. And that process, um, they take in a ton of carbon. And there's this really interesting process. I found this great article on PBS.org by uh, Bella Isaacs that talks about this process. It's based off a uh, report from the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution that's explaining this process of how these little phytoplankton at the surface of the ocean are converting carbon dioxide into plant material using photosynthesis-like plants, but then fish eat the phytoplankton, and then bigger fish eat those fish, and then bigger creatures eat those, and eventually those bigger creatures move down to the bottom of the ocean where they excrete the material from those uh, phytoplankton ultimately, and that carbon moves from the atmosphere to the very deep, deep bottom of the ocean, and then over millions and millions and millions of years, that carbon material becomes oil. What I found really fascinating is if you remember, Sarah said that peat bogs uh, store 44% of the carbon on land, which is really fascinating. And, and just one kind of uh, biome um, stores that much of the carbon. But what I didn't realize is that the ocean stores up to 20 times more than all land, plants, and soil combined, and the ocean actually stores 50 times more carbon than the atmosphere. So those little tiny phytoplankton, those little miniature plants, those little microalgae have been doing this work of storing carbon deep within the ocean uh, as a service to the planet, uh, is one way of thinking it, for millions and millions of years. And then I think the the thing that just makes it so clear to me of thinking about this millions of years process of these plants doing this work, this important work of storing carbon from the atmosphere so we have a stable climate. But now we're undoing that process in, in a, a rapid amount of time, like ridiculously short compared to how long it took to store it. By burning those fossil fuels, that is releasing that. And it's kind of a... a it's a kind of, a, in one way, you can think of it as like an insult to the service that these plants have been doing for the planet for, for so long of by, by just rapidly undoing that work by burning fossil fuels. And so, so I just wanted to share that with you. I think it's one of those lessons that plants can teach us on a, on a grand scale about climate change and, and was uh, uh, catalyzed by the conversation I had with Sarah. And I'll leave links to these, that article in the show notes and... Uh, if you have anything to say about climate change and plants, feel free to drop an email, rootboundpodcast at gmail.com, or send me a message on social media. I'd be happy to have those conversations. And thank you for listening to this episode of Rootbound. My guest on this episode of Rootbound was Sarah Ruiz. Sarah is a science writer at the Woodwell Climate Research Center, which you can learn more about at woodwellclimate.org. 
And you can learn more about Sarah at her personal website, which is ruizium.com. That's R-U-I-Z-I-U-M.com. If you are enjoying Rootbound and you want to help support the show, you can visit rootboundpodcast.com slash support to find out all the ways you can support the show, including leaving us a rating or review on your podcatcher of choice. Rootbound is hosted by the sycamore extolling Steve Ellington. Music by Christian Krigoskota. Fake ads by David Lani. Rootbound is a podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside, but if you can go outside, you could bask in the shade of a giant tree while resting on a bed of tiny moss. Squirrels go nuts for them! Go nuts with acorns.